Welcome to Awareness to Action, a podcast brought to you by the Northwestern Community Services Board Prevention Department. I'm your host, Casey, a social worker and prevention specialist here in Virginia. Our podcast goal is to promote wellness through conversation, connection, and action. We hope each episode will leave you feeling inspired and motivated to look for ways to get involved in your own community. Hi everyone, welcome back to Awareness to Action. Today I'm joined by Kim Lauby. Kim is the Executive Director of Human Understanding and Growth Services Incorporated, or HUGS Inc. for short, a 501c3 nonprofit organization that has been serving the youth and communities of Suffolk County for over 30 years. HUGS Inc. provides individuals, families, schools, and communities with prevention education strategies aimed at reducing high-risk behaviors among youth while fostering positive attitudes to improve all areas of life. Kim and I talked about a lot. Empowerment, resilience, community parenting, listening to your inner voice. Kim offers a perspective on personal growth and community engagement that feels both hopeful and challenging. I hope you'll listen to the end of our conversation, when Kim talks about using the tools we already have to create change. It's an inspiring message for a strange time in the world. We recorded this episode amidst the pandemic, so Kim is joining me via Zoom. Kim, welcome to the Awareness to Action podcast. I'm so glad you're here. I love being here, and thank you for the opportunity. Of course. Um, Kim, let's start with hearing a little bit about your story, um, because I know that your story is at the core of who you are and the work that you do now. Um, so why don't why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself? Sure. So I grew up on the east end of Long Island, right? In the, that famous area that people refer to as the Hamptons. And I know as soon as I say that, oftentimes there are ideas of how privileged my life might have looked like or what the world uh, what, what my experience was like growing up out here. And, and I have a little different of a story in that I was a single parent family. I was the only kid in my school to just have a mom. I didn't have a dad. Uh, we were on social services. And so that definitely was something very different. I remember, remember early on um, the lunch lady coming in and giving me a red poker chip. And, um, and that red poker chip meant I got free and reduced lunch. And I remember that experience of not like where the other kids kind of thought it was cool that I had some power that I got free lunch. You know, for me, it just was this mark. It was just this feeling of, oh, I wasn't like the other kids. I wasn't, um, I didn't necessarily have what they had. And so I remember early on always feeling a little different and, you know, and that led to this years of kind of finding trouble and um, and uh, really acting out in a way that was um, in response to all the ACEs, all the adverse childhood experiences I had been had been going through. And uh, sometimes I I say very lightly, I got a you know perfect score on the ACEs continuum, right? I got a ten out of ten, but I also know that that perfect score also has a lot of stuff written underneath it. So the, the fast forward um, to why, how I even wound up in this business and then in this field was um, when I was just almost 16, I had to um, say, yes, your honor, no, your honor, I'm sorry, your honor, and I'm never going to do that again, your honor. And um, my mom had placed a pins petition on me, it meant I was a person in need of supervision. And um, and I probably still am today. I'm just a whole lot more polished about it, right? Uh, but my mom placed a pins petition and I was sentenced to hundreds of hours of community service. And, and I think that was one of those moments where a marker was put in my life of where change possibly could begin to happen. Um, it wasn't the first marker, but it definitely was one of those moments that really shifted me and opened up doors that I didn't even know were even there. And um, and so that led me to doing community service in my school. And this woman by the name of Mrs. Block came in and she was the PTO president. She didn't even work at the school. And she asked me to hang up a hundred posters for this program called Hugs. And, um, and I remember 
I always was kind of difficult to adults. Like I didn't, you know, didn't want to let them in. And, uh, and so, but for some reason I wasn't difficult with her. And, um, and so I started hanging up these posters and everything about these posters spoke to me, but spoke to me internally. Um, it talked about meeting kids from different areas. And I liked that idea because I wasn't hanging out with a crowd that really was going to help me um, find my best self, right? Uh, it talked about going away for the weekend and talking about issues that were important to teens. And I didn't really kind of know what that meant. I just knew that we were just talking about things and people. We weren't talking about what we were thinking and feeling and what was going on inside. And yet there was so much voice going on inside, right? And, and, uh, and so much comparison about how I felt on the inside how everybody else looked on the outside. And so I liked the opportunity to even think that maybe we could talk about some real stuff. And, um, and lastly, it talked about learning how to be a leader. And quite honestly, I didn't think it was for me. Leadership was for the good kids. It was for the shiny kids. It was for the kids that everybody loved. It certainly wasn't for somebody like me. As a matter of fact, I was the kid your parent warned you about hanging out with, right? So I definitely had some, you know, I definitely, you know, had some resistance to leadership and good and shiny and all this greatness because, you know, I just kind of felt like I had all this stuff around me, whatever that stuff was, right? And so, so, but this voice kept gnawing at me saying, and with each poster I hung up, it was like, you should go on this program. You should go. And by the time I'd hung up the last one, I was like, you know what? I'm going to give it a shot. And I was good with that decision until I got back in front of Mrs. Block. And Mrs. Block did that thing that adults do. She said, you know, Kim, dear, you should go on that weekend. And as soon as an adult thought it was a great idea, I had thought it had to be the worst idea ever. And I was like, no, 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 Mrs. Block, I'm good. I'm good. I got this. And then she looked me dead in the eye and she said, you're going to make a difference. I had to look over my shoulder to see who she was talking about. Like nobody had told me I was going to, they, they told me I was going to get in trouble. I wasn't going to get, you know, I wasn't going to make it to my 18th birthday. I wasn't going to get married, all those different things, but nobody had ever told me that I was going to make a difference, or at least I never heard it. And for whatever reason, I did hear her that day. And I said, Mrs. Black, I don't have a way to get to Shelter Island. Shelter Island is an island off of Long Island, which is where the leadership camp took place. I said, Mrs. Black, I can't, I can't get there. She said, I'll drive you. I said, Mrs. Black, I don't have the money to go. And she said, I'll pay. And I said, Mrs. Black, my mom's never going to let me go to this thing. And she said, no, I'm going to call your mom. You know, and here I was, this kid who was standing there with jeans that had all sorts of holes in the pocket, not because it was trendy or fashionable, but because that's all we could afford. You know, I, I had a chain that went to a wallet just to make you think I was big, bad and tough. There was no money in the wallet, but I felt the need to like, you know, have this image. I probably was rocking a Metallica t-shirt, you know, and, and I just really had this energy about me at the time of like, no, like, you know, everybody stay away. But what I wanted most was to be included and to feel part of. And so, so she, she, every time I said no, she said yes. And she gets me out to this campsite and all the happy kids are there, all the shiny kids are there, all the kids that everybody wants, you know, and chooses was there. And I had this, this most interesting experience that I can't say that I've ever really remembered having so clearly was on one hand, I was like thinking, like, get me out of here. My skin was crawling. I was so uncomfortable. And at the exact same nanosecond, I'm home. And I had never had that experience of where like, I wanted to run and get out, but yet I knew that if I stayed that my life was going to get better. And, uh, and, and it was in that experience where they, the first question they asked me was the hardest question I had ever answered. And they had said, they had asked me um, to, and, and they asked everybody, it wasn't just me, it was everybody in the room, right? They had asked us to come up with five things we liked about ourselves, five things. And it couldn't be like external, it had to be internal. And, you know, so they gave us time and they're like, okay, write one thing you like about yourself. And I swear that pen weighed a thousand pounds. Like I couldn't pick it up to write down what I liked about myself. And then the second question and the third question, and I, 
I, and they lost me. By the time they asked me for the second thing I liked about myself, I couldn't come up with it. And what was really interesting was the process of that. And that was next to me was Scott and he was the big football player and like everybody loved him. He was just like, you just wanted to sit next to him and smell his leather jacket. Like he was just such a cool dude. And um, he couldn't come up with five things. And then next to me was Sally, who was the cheerleader and had the cheerleader ponytail and the little white shoes. And she was, everybody just loved her. She was so sweet and just so awesome. And she couldn't come out with five things. And I had realized in that moment that I'd spent all this time judging myself, thinking about who I was based on how everybody else looked on the outside. And I wasn't much different. So yeah, that's the long-winded story about how I kind of entered into this work. And um, and now I'm the director of that program. And I've kind of been here ever, ever since. And, um, and it just gave me, it took this kid who was full of aces and full of anger and full of resistance to a place that I didn't even think was possible. And, um, and for that, I am forever grateful and look to continue the work as a result. So much of what you just said feels really important. Um, but I want to touch on what you said about, well, first of all, I mean, it sounds like that was an experience that was really daunting and, required you to readjust some perceptions of what leadership means and, and who the other people were that you were there with. Um, but also when you talk about feeling so afraid and terrified, but knowing that you were home and like having that gut instinct that this was a place for you, which obviously <laughs> was an accurate gut instinct because now you're the executive director. Tell me about I mean, just, I would love to hear your thoughts on the importance of listening to that gut instinct. Uh, right. So, so much of the time I get confused, like what's like, what's gut of my higher self talking to me and what's um, just this kind of reactionary gut. Right. And so learning to honor that voice, learning to find the way to just trust myself more and more and, and open up my ears. I was, I was told early on to, um, to take, uh, take the cotton out of my ears and put it in my mouth, you know, and just learn to listen and just really listen. And so that the process of trusting my gut has been an evolution in a lot of ways. It has been um, listening to when it comes up and maybe taking a little action on it. In that particular moment, I just felt that there was some universal force that uh, really was beyond me. And, um, and I was open to listen to it, you know, and, uh, and I haven't always been open to listen to it. You know, I've hit the snooze button on life a lot of times and I've denied messages uh, from the universe often. And so it really has been this practice and, and for whatever reason, um, you know, I love that saying, whenever, whenever the student's ready, the teacher appears and, and that ha happens both forward and reverse. Right. And, uh, and so I just feel that at that moment, the pain had built up in my life so great and so powerfully, um, that just for a whole weekend, I was unconditionally loved and accepted and it scared the daylights out of me because I wasn't sure if I was ever going to have that experience again or even if I was worthy or if I stuck around long enough they would know I wasn't good and they wouldn't be loving on me the way they're loving on me right now and that whole imposter syndrome that kind of creeps up on us so yeah the process of just like taking a breath and just trusting trusting that I was going to be okay no matter what and, uh, and really being open to looking at the world through very different lenses. So now you're the, as we've said several times, the director of Hugs. And obviously we know one piece of the Hugs puzzle, and that's what you were involved in uh, long ago. But tell me about the work you're doing there now. Sure. So, so our flagship is, of course, always our teen institute program. And there are teen institutes all across the country. We all run autonomously. And, uh, but we have that kind of, you know, uh, family connection to teen institute and, and that we um, have had to find some really creative ways, because normally that would mean like 100 kids on a campground, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, 
Interestingly enough, we really, um, when, the, when the students arrive at camp, we have them turn in their cell phone. We have this big bucket and everybody kind of chooses in to being in the here and now by like consciously putting their cell phone in a bucket. Um, and, uh, and, and we really limit technology. Well, now, of course, we have to do everything virtual, right? So, so we still run that program. It's just, it's just virtual for right now as a way of staying connected. Um, but we're really about every phase of prevention um, that, that you can have. We have some programs in the schools that are evidence-based. Um, you know, we do a couple of those uh, that we offer. We have a community coalition. We actually have two. Uh, some are funded through drug-free communities money. One is really super grassroots and just um, is, is the will of a group of caring individuals who keep that, who keep that going. Uh, we offer something called the Long Island Resource uh, Addiction Resource Center, where people can really connect to the resources in the community, which becomes so hard, right? When you're in crisis and you need to call a drug and alcohol agency or you want to find treatment or help, sometimes it can be really difficult to navigate who to call, what level of care do you need? And so the Resource Center really begins to kind of map out um, a really user friendly way to to connect. And um, and then we said, hey, you know what? Kids need a safe place to be after school. So we created an after school program. And that's just kind of, you know, we look to say, oh, this is a need and let's see what we can do to fill it. And we design programs that are based on what the need of the community is at time, you know, in, in the moment with always the theme of how do we make this space better? How are we of contribution to others? How can we do little things and big things? You know, how can we work on little practices and how can we also work on community policy to begin to create a healthier environment in an environment where both our prevention and our folks in treatment and our recovery community can thrive. And I definitely believe in, in the all of us working together really make a, a major impact. When prevention works on cleaning up community and um, having less points of sale and different policies and laws in place, not only do our young people and our families benefit from that, but our recovery community benefits from it. So we've gone from this agency that just had just two of us. I mean, we're, we're not that much bigger now, but we are a little bit bigger. Um, this agency has just said, okay, what's the need? What can we build around it? And how can we say yes to creating something? And, um, you know, and, it, and it's been fun. And it's been fun to try and figure out how, what that looks like in a COVID world as well. I can imagine working with young people helps to motivate you to continue saying yes to any opportunity for growth or engagement or connections. Yeah, we really, um, you know, it, it's and connection is the word, right? Human connection. And yeah, a lot of the interactive things we do with young people are all about human connection, but we do it in a, in a larger way too. I mean, some of the things we did over the pandemic were certainly fun and, and different for us. Um, we're big team builders. We look to carry a message of resilience and hope and, and help even corporate businesses use um, resilience in organizational resilience. And so we've kind of found new audiences that we're beginning to work with and offer um, some training and uh, and some additional supports. And one of our favorite th things we did this year is, you know, we're a beachside community and we put a Christmas tree right out on the ocean. And we, we, we didn't know what, you know, we were just like, we, we just wanted people to just feel connected, right? Because there's all this disconnection happening. So we created a community tree and it, and, and it was a holiday tree. I shouldn't say it was a Christmas tree. It was a holiday tree because certainly um, all religions had something hung up and we had shells that people could decorate and just hang and identify their family and then put it out on Facebook. And Facebook became flooded with thousands of people we didn't even know who we had never connected to and probably wouldn't have connected to in our natural work, right? But just found this way of just saying, how, how can we bring a smile to people's faces. Um, this Valentine's Day, we created a huge heart that was right in the center of our village and uh, different businesses had ribbons and people could just write a positive message to the universe, something they wanted to release, something they wanted to put out there. And then we tied the ribbon on the heart. And so we just look for these, these like really simple ways we can say, let's get really conscious about 
our intent and about thoughtfulness and about connection and finding just different ways to do it even during such a difficult challenge that we're up against. I love that, Kim, because I feel like sometimes when we're trying to get engaged or we're trying to build connections, we get so in our heads and we mm -hmm. feel like everything has to be perfectly organized. And if it's not evidence-based, it's not going to work. And I'm not knocking evidence-based because mm -hmm. I love a good evidence-based program, mm -hmm. but also it can come from a community holiday tree. And that can be the greatest point of connection in the year, which is something that's again, so based on a gut instinct of, you know what, I think this could be a good idea. And then it turns out to be wonderful. And the ripple effect it has, right? So there's a community two towns over where they call me and they're like, hey, how did you do it? Can we do it? And I was like, yeah, you can do it. This is how we did it. And so now they had it up. They actually left theirs up through Valentine's Day and turned it into a Valentine's Day tree. But then there was another community in, in a whole different different area that's like we want in on that too so now it's creating this ripple effect we, we did this with um windmills are big out there i think there are seven windmills on the eastern part of long island and we lit one up uh purple for uh for addiction Re uh, for recovery month in in september and now we have other people who are like wait a second let's get all the windmills lit up let's see what we can do to really begin to um raise awareness and show people that recovery is possible so little things add up in into big things and 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 when you can match all of those little things with that evidence-based program now we got momentum going now we have a you know we're not just saying these things feel good but we actually can evaluate the their outcomes for our community absolutely um i just have to know mrs block has she continued to be an influence in your life so mrs black has passed away but i tell her story everywhere like it's how i start because i just feel that you know part of the answer to all that is going on is community community parenting looking out for the community kid like somehow we made that not okay like don't you tell my kid what to do and you know and and oh my gosh there's so much influence out there we have to be there for our community kids and we have no idea whose piece to the puzzle we actually are holding and so um in the way a, a smaller community would work, I, her son has reached out to me recently and has asked me to tell my story, to tell my story of recovery. And uh, because not, so so the, the part that I wasn't shared was, I was introduced to this pro prevention program at, at 15 and I stayed with it for a while, but it wasn't enough to get me to stop drinking and to put down alcohol in my life. And, um, and so that happened when I was 20. But what it did do was show me that recovery was possible. It was out there and that, um, that there was hope and that I could, that I, that I could have a different life and, um, and maybe even deserved a different life if I, if I chose it. Right. So, um, so I just really feel that, uh, so, so her son just recently asked me to tell my recovery story because she was, you know, that was a pivotal moment for me, which began to, you know, my mom placing the pins, putting me in front of the judge, the judge sentencing me, doing the community service led me to Mrs. Block. And it all becomes this series of this is how it all connects and um, took a young girl who really did not see herself living past her 18th birthday to just um, two days ago celebrating my 52nd birthday, you know, so it's, um, it, it's, we never know who we influence and who we impact and we can do it in really small ways and really big ways and mrs black was certainly a large contributor to my life just by telling me i was going to make a difference literally that's what she did she said you're going to make a difference and, and that so, was enough i know and i get to do that <laughs> today well happy belated birthday very exciting you. <laughs> um you just mentioned community parenting, and it's a concept that I find to be really exciting. So can you explain what community parenting is and the impact that it can have on communities and families specifically? Right. So if we were live, I would show you a picture of my grandma Kay, right? And, uh, and I would probably show you the Brooklyn Bridge. And my grandma's job in, in Brooklyn was 
she uh, she would hang out of the window and she would yell at everybody, you know, before their parents even had a chance to yell at them. She would, yeah, and she, she didn't care. She just was that community mom who was like, get off the street, stop doing what you're doing, get home. I always laugh saying she she probably had a wooden spoon in her hand. She definitely had a house coat on and whether her teeth were in her mouth was a 50-50, but she was gonna look after those community kids. And, and somehow we stopped doing that. And we just started one as parents and, and I don't know how many parents are listening, but one, the way we beat ourselves up as parents, the way we feel, I talked to, to a couple of parents just recently and they're like, I feel like I'm a failure during this pandemic. And I'm like, as compared to what? Cause we've lived through pandemics before, right? Like, like what's the measuring stick on this? And so, so parents, oftentimes we get very insular and we think we have to do it alone. And parenting is a verb. And I really wanna, if, if one bridge I can help make is for parents to talk to other parents and to take down that guard and to realize like, we don't have this figured out. And even the best cooks, I say this regularly, the best cooks still look at recipes and they still talk to other cooks and they still look at new and innovative ways to deliver food, right? Parenting's no different. Um, the rules changed, obviously. We saw the rules change tremendously this year. Um, and there are times that, that you will say something as a friend's parent that the kid hears differently, right? And so this idea of if we all look after the community children as our own, because if we lose one of our community children, we all feel that. But if we really begin to create opportunities for them to meaningfully engage and feel connected to and feel that not only, you know, they feel like the, the adults in the community are rallying around them and have their back, that really begins to create an environment where young people can thrive because they one of the protective factors is feeling connected and a part of your community. And so, so part of the challenge is getting adults to be more comfortable in in being innovative in their approach and making sure that uh, there are resources available in the community and lifelines. And I mean, one of the other huge mentors I had was uh, was a woman who worked in our school district as a, a hall monitor. Um, and she was watching, she was being a hall monitor to a basketball game after school. And, um, and I had gotten in a lot of trouble and I needed to safely be brought home. And she safely brought me home in this kind of mentorship, this um, informal mentorship began to happen. But again, it was yet another lifeline in the community. Now, some of the mentorships we look down upon now because we don't want adults and young people, you know, commingling. And I understand all the reasons why some of those ideas are there. But if we could just simply say, look, they're all of our kids and let's all look out for them. You know, my husband laughs. He says, when I drove, when, when kids, when I drive through town and kids see me, if they were starting to think about doing something wrong, they just kind of, oh, hi, Mrs. Lowby, hi. But I kind of set a little bit of that expectation. And I think we, we need to do that a little bit more and, and help each other out as parents right now, because it's many are, have these blurred lines between work and home. And, um, and so, yeah, I, I think that some of this answer is in us talking more as parents, um, reaching out more as parents, and just really looking after the community kid, because not every child in the community has responsible adults in their corner. And so sometimes we have to be that for someone. And something I want to emphasize, and I feel like you could emphasize it even better than I could, is that community parenting is not just for parents. People who are not parenting can also be looking out for the kids in the community in different ways. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that and that's so important to have said. So thank you. Thank you for that ad. Because it really, you know, again, the same person who was my mentor who was looking after me had no children of her own, you know, and I became at the time kind of like a little sister she was looking after. And so this idea of how we really could be there for one another, but the need is so great and out there right now. And, you know, when I hear you talking about community parenting, there's a level of vulnerability and honesty and saying, mm, I don't have all the answers and I don't know what I'm doing and I'd really like some help. And that's a hard thing. It is so hard. And um, 
you know, I really, I wish that was something that we could bring into the light a little bit more is, you know, how for many parents, I know they're put, they put their head on the pillow at night and second guess their decisions and what they've done. And they analyze and hyperanalyze and, you know, and I really wish that parents be, you know, just at least can recognize that they're not alone in that. And uh, we're all kind of trying to figure it out. And, and again, as we charter these new waters, we're all finding a new, a, a whole new set of rules and, and places and ways to negotiate and what we should negotiate on and how much is too much screen time and how much, there are just so many questions parents have nowadays. And it, it is certainly, it has some complexities to it. Absolutely. Um, I brought a quote with me that I wanted your perspective on because our previous conversations and this conversation have all made me think of this specific quote. So this is from Bessel A. Vanderkolk, author of The Body Keeps the Score. And it reads, as long as you keep secrets and suppress information, you are fundamentally at war with yourself. The critical issue is allowing yourself to know what you know. That takes an enormous amount of courage. You know, you hear that and you feel it. I mean, it's not just like you hear it. So, you know, the the, the immediate thing is this this great training that um, I don't know if it's great training. I'm not sure. I'm not sure where this lands, but just like the the idea that you're only as sick as your secrets, right? That's one thing. And and how am I how am I aligning with my truth? And how am I aligning? And how am I showing up? And so this idea of staying holding to our truth and staying in our truth and even kind of rediscovering what our truths really are because for so many of us it's was the idea that was poured into us that other people told us about ourselves and you know in this way that we grow up we have this opportunity if we choose to take a look at what is my truth what is my how do i listen to that um to that voice inside? How do I listen when the universe is presenting or when that teacher shows up or how do I honor that? And so, you know, I love the idea of this quote from so many places um, in, in, in mainly like, if I am staying in my truth and if I am being raw and open and vulnerable, and I have to say, I've never been let down yet as a result of that, right? Like I tend to really kind of speak very honestly about my life experience, about um, my experience with the world, even today. Um, young people will say all the time, they're like, Kim, you're the most real adult I know. And it's, it's not that I'm the most real adult they know, it's just that I'm open with them and talking about my vulnerabilities and my complexities and, um, and my fears and how do I walk through them. And, and some days I walk through fear like a champion with, you know, like I'm gonna conquer today and I'm gonna make today happen. And just as much as I can do that on one extreme, there are moments where I'm just like afraid to open the door to go outside, right? And, and I think, the awareness and the understanding of that's all of me, you know, that's all of me. And so, um, you know, and how can I begin to hold my truth stronger? How can I begin to listen to that voice in there? Not the voice that was poured in, not the voice that, you know, no, I, I get in my, my own way all of the time, right? I just jump out in front of me and whether it's I block my own success or I, you know, um, I hold back or I play small in the world or whatever it is that stops me from like really breaking through that next place. Um, so much of that stems from honoring that voice and kind of fine tuning that voice that, um, you know, I'm going to deflect for a second. So, so, so it was my birthday, right? And it was my, it was also my 27th wedding anniversary. I've, I've never done something for 27 years, right? I, I've owned, I, I moved 19 times in 21 years of my childhood, 19 times in 21 years I moved. So I never had a sense of home, right? So now I live in the same house for all these years, married to the same guy and we've raised, you know, just some super uber cool kids. And, uh, and, and now we have our dogs there. And so all of that happens. And so, so my birthday hits and my phone flooded flooded with message, messages from 
like all over the place. I mean, just people who I've spoken in front of, people who've heard a podcast I was on, like just Facebook friends. And and it blows me away because there was a moment in a time where I just felt so unlovable, right? And there was a moment that I could have been in a crowd and felt alone. Um, and, and sometimes that moment could be just yesterday, right? <laughs> like sometimes that doesn't even have to be like so far away. But just really like accepting like, oh, sometimes we have to let people love us until we love ourselves fully. And, um, and, and we have to, you know, it's important to lock into the feedback that we're getting, that good feedback, you know, that people do really like us, you know, or that we're really likable or we're really lovable. Or we're re I love that I lack, I am lovable and capable. If I can't remember anything else in a day, I can remember I lack, I am lovable and capable. And <clears throat> so honoring that internal voice, building upon it, um, learning to tell that committee that constantly chatters that I'm not good enough. I'm not pretty enough. I didn't do that enough. Right. Um, just to say, Hey, committee, thanks for sharing and let it, <laughs> let that thought go. And then just kind of replace it with all of that good voice and, and, uh, and create more space for that, for that voice to come through. So I'm not sure if I answered where even your question was, but what I would say is that learning to honor that voice is a process and, um, and, and some of it is about shedding and getting rid of that other voice and, and filling the space with, with truth, with real truth. I just wanted your perspective. So that was beautiful and <laughs> perfect. Um, and I think it's really crucial to just emphasize as much as possible that everything you just shared is a a daily practice. I, we won't reach a point. I'm not ever going to reach a point where I'm just like, yep, I'm so lovable and everybody loves me and that's great. And also I can hold strongly to my truth and I know exactly who I am and I'm, I don't have to ever reflect ever again. <laughs> it's a daily, I'm going to let myself be loved. I'm going to speak my truth and I'm going to get through this day. And I don't know. I think we put a lot of pressure on ourselves to figure it all out very quickly, right. very young. <laughs> right. And I think, you know, we have this opportunity to just kind of be too. I think one of the, one of the biggest things that I've been in conversation with people lately is just how addicted to being busy we are. And, you know, I'm so busy. I'm just so busy. I'm, and it almost becomes that I'm busier than you. And of course I'm, I'm just that, you know, I think in, in, in we, some of us even did it during COVID, right? But I think one of the things that COVID provided a blessing in, if, if you wanted to take a look at it, is just kind of slowing things down a little bit. Um, and, you, you know, I often joke like, you know, at any given moment during, during, this, uh, during this pandemic, I could have either been like, hit next on Netflix, right? And uh, hit the next episode and kind of be this, like, I don't feel like moving to, oh, let's create a new workshop or a new idea, or let's talk about what people need. And I could be anywhere on that gamut. And, and self-care isn't just a bubble bath or a TED Talks, right? Like self-care is so many different things and just giving your, yourself permission. And this is what I was hearing you, you talk about was as we kind of grow and if we're committed to personal development and personal growth, that sometimes it's just okay just to be, to be a human being and not a human doing all of the time. And, um, and as we navigate, we can just kind of just say, today is a day, like I brushed my teeth and I combed my hair and I went out and that was like enough for the day. And even if you didn't do that, that was a neat, you know, that was a neat, you had a place on this earth. I just read a phenomenal article that is very much connecting to what you're sharing. Um, it was the New York Times and it was from a woman who's run, I don't even know how many marathons in her life. And she was talking about when the pandemic first hit, she didn't want to go running. So she just started relaxing at home and it was really good for her. But eventually she realized that there were days where she just needed, like you said, to be on the couch watching Netflix. But there were other days where she kind of needed to bolster herself to get up and go outside and go for a run because she needed that. That's That was such a crucial part of her life and her identity. And I thought it was a really beautiful reflection on 
exactly what you're saying. Self-care changes from day to day. What we need changes from day to day. And there are times where we kind of got to bump ourselves into action and other times where we can just chill and that's good too. Right. And what are some of those personal agreements we create with ourselves around that, right? Like, okay, you know, whether it's I'm only going to watch two episodes tonight or I'm not going to, you know, or or that today is okay for me to have a Netflix day and tomorrow my agreement with myself is to do, you know, I think it becomes just part of that awareness and that that consciousness of that it's all okay. I mean, it's all really, really okay. And um, I was speaking with a marathon runner too about just how do you dig deep? Like, how do you, when you're, when you just like, I don't have anything else, how do you dig deep? And, um, and that's where the, that's where the work takes place is when we just don't feel like, oh, I could do one more thing. How do we, how do we kind of make that shift? And, um, and that kind of call to action to, to step up. And to be stepping up boldly and pushing ourselves in that way while also being gentle. It's a, right, a right. balance to hold always. <laughs> right, right. It's such an interesting, you know, I, uh, so I have written on my desk, it says, be gentle with yourself and others, right? And I think if there's ever a time for grace, this is it. And, um, you know, we hear all the time, we don't know what the other person is walking through. We don't know how... Um, yeah, I had, I had this experience. This is one of my one of my favorite stories. Uh, what is this experience? When I was young, I used to go into the same. When I first got sober, I went to the same Seven Eleven every day, and I got the same cup of coffee, and it was the same girl behind the counter every single day. And um, and I'm you know I I love connecting and talking with people, and uh, whether it's on an airplane or in a Seven Eleven, it's just kind of my thing. And this particular day, I just wasn't, I was, I was feeling a little grumpy. I was just not in a, you know, I just wanted my cup of coffee. And I looked at the young woman behind the counter and she had had super, super long hair and she had cut it like shorter than what mine is right now. And so, so I thought, tell her her hair looks good. And then like that committee started to chime up. Don't, don't Kim, you're going to wind up talking forever. Just don't blah, blah, blah. Just, you know, just keep going. And, and then I was like, no, Kim, it's, Silly, just give her a compliment. And when I tell you, I had this whole debate in my head on whether to compliment somebody and just, it just was like, it, it, it took a little bit of energy, right? And so so as I was on my way out the door, I was like, hey, your haircut, it, it looks really good. And she's like, oh, she's like, can I talk to you? And I was like, yeah, now I wanted to go, you know, I'm not gonna lie, I wanted to go. But I sat there and we didn't talk, I actually listened. And, um, but then I started to listen and really hear what she was saying. And the more I listened, the more she talked. And, and as the story went, I mean, it was hours later, I left the store, I went back to my apartment and, uh, and I missed all the different things I was supposed to do that night, but it didn't matter um, because I just felt that that space was really important to have had. Well, fast forward to a couple days later, I got home to my apartment and there was a, a lovely gift on the on my front porch and um but what was more important than the gift was the letter that was in it and what she shared was that she had planned to take her life that day and she had cut her hair just to be pretty enough just to maybe see if anybody recognized or n- noticed or paid attention and I just always will never forget that story because that was a moment where I just needed to get out of self for a little bit, right? Just get out of self. And, um, you know, she, no matter what the outcome of that story was, those were her, that would have been her choice, no matter how that story gets told. But I just thought like, gosh, we just, if we really open up our ears, there are people who need to tell their story out there. You know, after Hurricane Charlie, I remember being down in Florida and trying to help. My my mom lives there. My grandma, we were trying to help people clean up and people just needed to tell you what happened. After Hurricane Katrina, I was down in, in New Orleans on some work and I asked the guy who took my my uh, my luggage out, uh, at, at the hotel, I was like, how, how did you handle it? And he, he looked at me and he goes, oh, ma'am, he goes, I didn't have to swim that far. And I thought, 
oh, that was his measuring stick. His measuring stick of this major hurricane was he didn't have to swim that far. And so sometimes people just need to take, they need to be heard. They need to really be heard. And, and I think we can offer that um, at times. And then there are times that we need to be heard. And it's so important that we have in our personal board of directors, people who can listen to us when we need to just, we need to get some, some air pumped back into us. I'm so grateful that you just shared those stories because I think sometimes we stop ourselves from hearing somebody's story because we're afraid and we're afraid of the way it'll break our heart or the way that it'll leave us speechless or, you know, being afraid of not having the right thing to say. But I've yet to experience a time where listening, even when I didn't have the right things to say or I didn't know what to do, I've yet to experience a time where that was the wrong call. Right. Right. I, I, I so agree. And we do. We, you know, sometimes I get caught up and I, I want to fix it for somebody, right? I want to have that, that articulate thing to say where, you know, it just kind of makes perfect sense, but life stuff doesn't always make sense, right? Like it just doesn't always make sense. And so um, just validating and hearing people's feeling and, um, and sometimes they may not even know what that feeling is, but when we can just love on them and honor them enough just to kind of recognize that, yeah, we're feeling beings, you know, that's, that's part of it part of it. And, um, and that, that idea, you know, I think that Stephen Covey shares it in uh, uh, the seven habits is to seek to understand rather than to be understood. And um, oftentimes, we don't know that childhood trauma that happened for that individual, we have no idea what's going on, or what they what they fought up against, you know, um, I have a dear friend who lost a tremendous amount of weight and so you know and, and in some ways that the world can still see her as like they would define her as heavy but they haven't seen like all that she's done to improve her health and and what she's had to work through of her own emotional growth during that time and, and what that meant for her so we never you know that's the thing is there's no measuring stick out there that says this is how far we've come you know um if we're lucky we get to just recognize it just a, a little bit in ourselves and others and that the most important work is almost always happening internally and there's no way to see it or know it in another person without asking right. we can't observe it from the outside i mean you know, you noticed a haircut and that was a key to allow you to hear what was actually happening. And that's so important. Right, right, yeah. And it's just the, you know, again, gentle with ourselves and others, right? And we, we just never know, we just never know. So shifting gears a little bit, but this is really all very connected. I have heard you speak about resilience and I know that it's a huge part of your work to build resilience, to recognize resilience. So I would just love for you to talk about the power of resilience and how we can build it in ourselves and our relationships and our communities. I think the awesome thing is we all have a resilient story right now we're writing. We all have a resilient story. How did you walk through the pandemic like how did you get through it and and if i if a year ago right so so march 13th was the main people vastly i think march 13th is that most people recognize as the day the world shut down right or at least it, it's what it was here in new york and so if i would have said to you on march 1st in 2020 hey by the way here's what's going to go down um people are going to get sick you may lose people you really care about um, you're not going to go to sports arenas. You're not going to go to concerts. You're probably going to order food into your house more than you ever have before. You're going to wear a mask. 
you're going to not know if you should shake hands anymore. You're going to be awkward. The people you used to hug, now you're not hugging and, and physically you're not going to be connected in a way. And, um, and then you're going to go through some real social conflict in, in the country and you're, all this stuff is going to happen. You would probably say, oh, no way. And no way could I handle all that. I, I'm not going to be able to handle living in my house for a year. And that's the thing about resilience is we never know how strong we're going to have to be until we have to be that strong. And oftentimes we don't recognize resilience in ourselves. We can see it in other people. We're like, oh, they're mad. They were up against it and they did some amazing work in that space. I get reminded of that all the time when I'll have a young person share my story of my story. And I'm like, wow, that kid is so you know, strong and powerful and how are they walking through? And then, you know, somebody will always gently remind me like, that's your story, Kim, like you did it. And so, so the, the interesting thing about resilience is oftentimes when we're in it, we didn't feel like we had got a chance to vote. We just did it. Right. And so, um, and I think that becomes so important to just recognize how we're writing our resilience story and, and, and what's in there. And, and whether it's from Netflix or from I'm going to work out today, wherever that space is to really recognize that you have a resilience story. And, and, and it's about the ability to bounce back. Resilience is about the ability to bounce back. And now let's talk about how we're going to bounce back and how we're going to move forward. You know, like what that next phase is going to be. And so I had no idea I was being resilient. I thought I was just surviving. Like I just thought it was, and it was certainly survival skills, but part of that was my resilience, right? And and so learning to walk through through the fire at difficult times. And, and anybody who's walked through the fire didn't really stop to think consciously, can I do this? Should I do this? What is it? We just did, we just did. and and bumps and bruises and it just wasn't so pretty but when we recognize resilience in others we're actually recognizing resilience in ourselves. and um and we get to work on that resilience muscle and again that inner dialogue i think it is so connected because sometimes we know what we can get through when we acknowledge what we've already been through like oh, okay i had fear in that moment and i was okay didn't get the outcome i wanted but I survived or that no. And I love this about resilience. How many times have you heard the word no and you were crushed at the time? You were just crushed, you were devastated. You didn't get the job, you didn't get the boyfriend, you didn't get the girlfriend, you didn't get whatever it was, you were so convinced and you got the word no and you just didn't know where to go with it. And then sooner or later you realized that no just meant next opportunity, N-O, next opportunity. And suddenly you're like, oh, like I didn't realize that was possible because I was, I was convinced it was that over there. And so our resilience story speaks so much to that is that, um, you know, the universe moves us through, right. And, and brings us to that, to that next place. And as, especially as we become aware of it and open to it, but that what we think is supposed to be, we're locked in, we build, you know, when we can become open to oh, what possibly could be, oh, that's so beautiful. And if I would have settled for what I thought, look, I just wanted to make it to my 18th birthday. I mean, really, that was like, like, I just didn't think that was going to happen. And then I didn't think I was going to have a, a a marriage. And well, well then I didn't think I was going to have a loving, kind, caring marriage. Like in all these kind of ways that I would have put limits or settled for something just really, you know, that no meant next opportunity and really, um, really opened up to potentials I didn't even know I had. And, and I, you know, I share from my personal experience on that, but when I listen to others, it's so true for them too, that, you know, they, they recognize their own resilience or see how their story gets unfolded. And it's just, um, it's quite beautiful. And oftentimes beyond, I mean, not to overuse the term, but beyond our wildest dreams. It's such a powerful exercise to reflect on the things we've overcome and the path that we've taken to get where we are. It's just so hopeful, you know? Yeah. I hope is just, there's no better word. 
there's just no better word. I just, um, I live on it. I love it. Um, and you know, I, I just, it was definitely, you know, I stood, I sit here today because of it. So just love it. I want everyone listening to take the, the moral of everything that Kim just said is that you are resilient. You're living through a totally wild time in the world and we're all figuring it out and we're all being resilient. And that's a beautiful thing. I, one of the, the homework I, I give in a workshop is um, asking people to write yourself a letter from a year out, like a year out from now and saying, you know, just in just writing down the accomplishments, you know, a year from now, like what an amazing year. What, what if 2020 was happening for us and not to us? Like, what if it was happening for us and write down all the benefits of all the things that were happening as a result. And when we write it as if we were in the future, somehow it helps us kind of give us consciously or subconsciously this way of like where we possibly can get to when we reframe how we're looking at it. And we're so wise and we know ourselves so well that an exercise like that can be transformative. I, when I was a freshman in college, I wrote myself a letter at the start of the school year. And in that letter shared some of the hopes that I had for myself by the end of the year. And when I opened that letter at the end of the year, I had all these questions about all these things in my life. And I was very confused about a lot of things. And that letter had every answer I needed. And I was so thankful for my my little August self <laughs> for sharing those things, but it's, we're, we're the same people who keep growing. And so, I don't know, I think we have a lot to learn from ourselves past and present and future. And it's just beautiful to even be engaged in conversations where we can even just even take a, just spend some time talking about our humanness, right? Just talking about our humanness. Cause that's the one thing we all have. Absolutely all human beings. Mm -hmm. So Kim, you are a lovely example of someone who has taken their awareness, both from lived experience and outside learning and turned it into action. Um, so I'm wondering what you would identify as some of the tools or resources or realizations that a person needs to have or do or make to move from that place of awareness to action. Right. I think the one step that I would say that happens between awareness and action is acceptance, right? And um, and kind of accepting, you know, whether it's we need to change, accepting things where they are, where, you know, whatever it is, is just, I mean, I think, hey, I just love, love, love prevention, right? I just love this work. And because this work means so many things. And it, it means community, it means hope, it means resource, it means one-on-one -on -one conversations and, you know, in, in very intimate places. And then it means these larger conversations with, you know, uh, different key stakeholders. And so, so when we can begin to just say, hey, wait a second, something needs to be done. And then realize, well, why not me? You know, like, like instead of walking by the cup and saying, ew, somebody threw the cup on the ground, how rude it was they threw the cup on the ground. Just pick the cup up and throw it out, right? Like just make the space better. You didn't cause the space to be what it is and why it is, but what can you do? And, and again, this can just be in small ways, right? An actionable step, right? And we, we talk about the ripple effect and it, if we all just wrote out just a handwritten note to one person a week, one person a week, a handwritten note, it's 52 people after a year who had a moment where they read a note that somebody cared about them, right? Like that's a simple like action. Like if, if you started and said, hey, can you impact 52 people you know, in, in a very, could you do that by the end of the year? Well, some of us are going to do it in just in kind of our natural way, but like, oh, if I wrote a letter to somebody one, one time a week, for, that's 52 individuals who had a moment where somebody said, I love you, I care about you, and you're awesome because, right? What a gift. And if we all did that, boy, that like ripple effect that that has. And um, 
you know, I mean, the, the currency that, the, that that creates is just super powerful. And so instead of looking at what can't be done, I think the part of just going to action is just trying no matter what. I can't tell you how many programs we put into place that were like, we thought it was going to be great and it didn't have the outcome that we wanted. And it was still good, right? It still had its impact. Um, you know, but we certainly can begin to just move to action. And so, so awareness of self aware, community awareness, awareness of what our fellow human beings are going through that plays a huge part. And then, you know, what can I do to be an agent of change? What can I do to just make the space a little bit better? And whether it's picking up a coffee cup or, just looking at somebody and trying to smile through our eyes, um, you know, whether it's holding the door open for somebody um, and really getting into that servant leadership, how can I be of maximum usefulness of others? And in that, still take care of myself because sometimes that becomes a missing piece, right? Those are kind of those sweeter places of, Aware, you know, awareness, acceptance, action, change that can be, begin to happen. So, you know, I, I guess for whatever reason, good, bad, or indifferent, I was never one to be like, oh, that's somebody else's job. I'll wash the dishes and feel my feelings, you know, and kind of like dress up and show up and do what, what I can in my little small way to make a difference in whatever space to make the space better. I'm pretty sure it was Mother Teresa who said, wash the dirty dish, not because the dish is dirty, but because you love the person who's going to use it next. Oh, and that's a great one. Yeah, I might be misquoting that. I can put it in the, <laughs> the show notes. <laughs> um, Kim, I'm so glad you touched on servant leadership because earlier you shared that when the idea of being a leader first appeared in your life, you felt like that was for the good shiny people. Um, but it's really for all of us. Can you speak a little bit to that? Right. So here's um, lots of folks will use the term born leader, you know, and it's just never a, a just never been a fan, right? Like we can teach leadership and leadership looks so different in so many ways. Um, Leadership it can happen in small ways and in big ways, and uh, but it's really about making space for people's voice, making space where people can be heard and creating environments where people can share their voice and learn how to fine tune it and or find their voice if they didn't know they had it. And it's really the opportunity to, to kind of just create environments where people can bring their best self. And if you bring your best self forward and I bring my best self forward, man, we're going to do some awesome things in that space together. And so I uh, just recently was watching uh, one of the, one of the television shows did groups of women on zoom and they were just like blown away with this idea of like, if we just really create space to talk about what's going on, like, how therapeutic that is, how much that helps mental health. And, and we've been, I know in my work, we've been doing this for a long time, right? We bring kids, we bring young people together and we give them meaningful ways to share and talk. And that really does have a larger impact on their awareness, um, how they're gonna become agents of change in their community. How are we gonna create people who can listen with a different ear? and really be that lifeline, be that beacon, be that lighthouse for somebody who's going to need it at any given time. And um, servant leadership and the seven principles are just so, uh, it's just kind of the way, it's a beautiful way to do business and honoring people where they're at and helping them find value and, um, and collectively working on things together is just uh, to lead without a leader, right? That's um, that's the whole idea, to lead without a leader. And when we can help people find their voice and strengthen it and fine tune it, um, that's a pretty cool place to be. Agreed. All right, Kim. So 
listeners of this podcast know that we usually end with a question about awareness to action, but um, I feel like you've covered that already pretty beautifully. Um, So let's close with your version of the starfish story. Right. So, so oftentimes I find that, that we used to tell the story a lot and we stopped telling it, but the the quick version of it is uh, a little boy was walking on the beach and there were thousands of starfish that had washed up on the shore. And he would like one by one, very like take them and throw them back and take them and throw them back. And there was an old man who, who came across him and was like, young boy, what are you, what are you doing? And he's like, He's like, I'm, I'm saving the starfish. I'm like, I'm, I'm, I'm getting them help. And he's like, young boy, look, there are thousands of starfish. Like, like you, you, how are you even making a difference? And the little boy picks up the one starfish and he throws it back. And he's like, well, it just made a difference to that one. And when I tell the story, people are like, oh, that makes sense. And then I get mad because I hate that story. And here's why I hate that story. I think we have new tools today and we need to utilize them more and because we need buckets. And yes, it is about reaching that one individual. And I also think that we can think about how much the need is and how much the need especially is going to be because the tsunami that is gonna happen with mental health and with substance use disorder after this pandemic is going to be so powerful and we are going to really need buckets and so um so let's try and save as many individuals as we can and let's try and make the space better and let's try and yes take care of ourselves and plug in and um and and self-care and let's try and really be of service wherever we can because we're being called to action in a very big way and um and, and together we can answer that call. So Casey, thank you so much for the opportunity to just come online and, and just talk about all the good stuff, right? Like talk, and even as we meander through some of the challenging stuff, we got to talk about the good stuff. So let's grab some buckets and grab some starfish and, uh, and do what we can to make the space better. Kim, thank you so much for being here. I'm so grateful for the perspective you've shared and I'm feeling inspired to to grab my bucket and reflect on what I can bring to the table as we move out of this pandemic and respond to the impacts of it. And yeah, I'm grateful for the work you're doing in your community and for your time here. Thank you, you too. Thanks for listening. We've linked information on Kim's organization, Hugs, in the show notes. You can also find the New York Times article I mentioned, as well as the correct Mother Teresa quote. Thanks again to Kim for a great conversation. As always, make sure to subscribe to Awareness to Action so you can keep up to date with all of our future episodes. We'll see you next time.